Podo. You're listening to Law and Disorder, a weekly podcast which aims to get to the heart of the big legal issues of the day. Hello and welcome to the second episode of our podcast, Law and Disorder. Now, who have we got here? Let's have a roll call. Helena Kennedy. Charlie Faulkner. And I'm Nicholas Mostyn. And today we're going to be discussing what has been described as the controversial Rwanda judgment, which is formerly known as Rex, on the application of AAA against the Secretary of State for the Home Department, which was decided earlier this year by the Supreme Court. Now, I can deal with the issues that were determined by the Supreme Court quite quickly. The case be a relief to hear our <laughs> it'd be a relief to hear it, yes. Yeah. Essentially, the Supreme Court agreed with the factual determination that had been made by the Court of Appeal that Rwanda was not a safe third country to which asylum seekers whose claims have been treated as inadmissible, I'll come back to what that means in a minute, could be sent. An inadmissible claim is one where an asylum seeker has had the opportunity on their journey here to apply for asylum in another country en route, which is usually France, but failed to do so. In that case, their claim for asylum here is deemed to be inadmissible and it will not be considered on the merits and they are liable to be expelled to another place provided it is a safe third country. And the Court of Appeal held that Rwanda was not a safe third country because there were substantial grounds for thinking that asylum seekers who are sent to uh, Rwanda would face a real risk of being, I, how do I pronounce this, refouled, rifled? How, how do you pronounce it? Uh, refoulement. Refoulement. We are not expert linguists. We, are, we, have, we make pretentious claims for our legal ability, but not our language. So you usually say refoulement. So the decision that the Supreme Court made was in fact a f- familiar, straightforward question. Were the factual findings made by the Court of Appeal tenable? And if they were tenable, the principle was that uh, the appeal court will only allow an appeal against a finding of fact where the decision was basically completely off the rails. And the Supreme Court decided that the Court of Appeal decision was not off the rails, and so this was quite familiar territory. And so the decision, in fact, is incorporates this finding of fact. And what is more interesting, I think, for our purposes, is what the government's response has been. Now, the government's response to this has been to introduce emergency legislation, which is called the Safety of Rwanda Asylum and Immigration Bill. It purports to reverse the finding of fact that was endorsed by the Supreme Court. Mm. Now, do you think that that is a thing that Parliament can do? It can do it, but it shouldn't do it. The underlying principle here, which we've signed up to as a country in a myriad of international treaties, is that we won't send people back to a place, if they come to our country, where they may be the subject of persecution, torture or death. Mm-hmm. What the Supreme Court found in the Rwanda hearing, and it, it, they endorse the judgment of Nicholas Underhill, who's a, a really brilliant. big uh, lawyer. He wrote a judgment that is longer than novels, longer than PhD theses, and he absolutely nailed the proposition. You can't trust Rwanda because they've been exporting people from other countries back to torture 
and debt. So that is the in, position. In breach of agreements. Put aside the question of what the legislature can do, because they can do this. Should they be absolutely breaking the promise we made as a country to be a genuine home for genuine asylum seekers? And the answer is no. But what the government has said is since the findings were made, endorsed by the Supreme Court, they have entered into a solemn treaty with Rwanda, yes. which addresses all the various concerns of the Supreme Court, specifically the risk of a inexperience leading to asylum seekers being refooled back to their places of origin, which are places of danger. These are all going to be addressed and, and furthermore, they're going to be ensured that these perils don't happen by the presence of British monitors to make, to make sure well, that everyone... Well, one, one British monitor. What they, what they did was they said, oops, now that we've been caught absolutely out by the courts, they sent Mr James Cleverley, the Home Secretary, and he signed an agreement with Rwanda, and Rwanda said, we promise that anybody you send us, we'll not send to any other third country except the United Kingdom. Mm. But the whole point about the treaties that Nicholas Underhill wrote was you can't trust Rwanda. Let's just review for a minute the evidence that went before these courts, which was that there was an examination of the applications for asylum in Rwanda and 98% of the applications for asylum had been refused. This was of people who had come from, who'd fled from Syria, which is the best known torture empire in the world. world. People who'd fled from Afghanistan, people whose you know, parents were judges and so therefore were seen as collaborators with the Western systems. People who were fleeing Afghanistan because they worked for the British Army or the American military. And so, I mean, the very people that we were we would want to see protected from persecution were going there and it was being decided that they weren't um, entitled to, to asylum. So their own decision-making process, it was more than, it was about the fact that they did not have proper decision-making processes. And it's why most people examining what happened in Rwanda saw that their system is not yet up to snuff when it comes to the rule of law. And I mean, just I completely agree with all of that. The government are relying on process to justify what they're doing. They're saying, well, look, we can pass an act of parliament that can reverse a, a court decision, and they plainly can. But they need to be looking more widely at what the United Kingdom's commitment to the rule of law means and a basic commitment is you don't export people to death or torture we can't go round the world wagging our finger at countries for not being in compliance with human rights if we ourselves in a panic because of the politics of immigration decide to ditch the most that's basic the, that's the thing I, that I, I feel really is objectionable because here am I now running an institute of human rights and we often call out as a global institute calling out um, failures of, to protect the human rights of people mm. cre- committing crimes against humanity and calling out nations for doing it and breaching international treaties which they've signed and then they're going to turn around and say well hold on a minute you're breaching international treaties as well look what mm. you're doing in relation to your own asylum system. So you can't speak with forked tongues. You've got to be highly principled and take the high ground if you want to be can seen. I, can I put this point though for you to deal with? What the government would no doubt say in response would be to quote that great song from that 
magnificent film Frozen. You can see I've got small grandchildren. Who <laughs> yes. I, I assume you had fun yourself. Yeah, exactly, Frozen, which I had. I think I had to watch last Christmas Eve four times in succession in order to That's try and the entertain of it. Yes. grandchildren. But remember, the princess sings um, very movingly, the past is in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the government would say that was then. Under the old Rwanda, yeah. they were not managing asylum very well. But we've signed this treaty, this marvellous, shiny new treaty, which has got this new scheme, which is going to make assuage all the concerns of the Supreme Court. The first instance body will be trained by us. There will be human rights lawyers there to make sure that all the Who? principles of asylum... I don't, yes, it's, this is what they said. The appeal body will not just have Rwandan judges. There will be Commonwealth judges as well, but and they'll have to take the expert opinion Nicholas, of humanitarian Nicholas, lawyers. It's going to be marvellous, they say. I'm sure it will be marvellous. <laughs> if you believe that... I mean, you don't believe it, obviously, but if the <laughs> governments believe it, why wouldn't the obvious thing to do would be to say, and we're so confident that we're right, that we're willing for the UK courts to make a judgment on whether it's right. If this treaty, this shiny new treaty, is so marvellous and meets all the concerns of the Supreme Court, why do we need this bill? Why don't we just put them on aeroplanes and send them to Rwanda? Because well, it's going to be fine. As well. I they need the protection of the law. And if the law says this is not OK, then they get protected. And if the law says this treaty is absolutely fine, you're safe as houses in Rwanda, then they can indeed be but, sent to Rwanda. Yes, you know, they but can. Listen, here we are. We have a, a government that's supposed to respect the rule of law. That means that matters go before our courts in front of our independent judges and they're supposed to be respected by us all. That includes politicians mm. and he said they don't like this and so they don't like this decision and so they're going to say we're going to pass a law that says dogs are cats as Edward Garnier a conservative lawyer in the House of Lords it points out that you know this is like saying you know the, the, world, er, is the world is flat I mean it's just ludicrous that it's turning reality on its head that's it, been pointed out that the country is unsafe it to make it safe it can't be just that you say they're now not going to send people anywhere. They're just going to keep people, but probably not in very nice circumstances because you're not allowed to protest. You're not allowed to uh, do many things in, in Rwanda. It's not a protector of the rule of law. The leader of the opposition was jailed for six years and she's recently written an article saying, my country under this man, Kagame, is not a safe place for any, any of its own citizens, never mind for people who are coming in as outsiders. So she's made that point. We know from organisations that work inside Rwanda that asylum seekers fleeing from the Congo, where bad things happen, into Rwanda are treated abysmally. So we know that the, the history of this is bad. But what, of course, the government wanted, it was a wheeze with, with under Boris Johnson. It was a wheeze, the idea that if you want to frighten the life out of uh, asylum seekers, tell them we're going to send them somewhere really terrible. And they try and think, where can we think of that will really put the fear of God in them? Yes, Rwanda, where there was a terrible genocide, where people were slaughtered, um, using machetes, oh, the whole thing. That's a word that will put the fear of God in them and they won't come. And that's, that's the idea. That, that's this whole concept of deterrence. I mean, people, I don't think deterrence works at all. In, 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 in order to be, as Elena is saying, in order to be a deterrent, it's got it's to be pretty work. ghastly. If it's going to be pretty ghastly, it's probably not going to comply with our concept <laughs> of the most basic law. That's so you can't have it both ways. I don't think. That's the point. <laughs> but, but I mean, th- th- this is the big, 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 big clash, isn't it? In a panic in the face of the collapse of their policy, this government ditched the rule of law. They well, I'm going to come, they haven't come on been to a- the terms of the bill in a minute. But they haven't but- been able to sign a certificate saying it complies no, 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 with no, the no. Human Rights Act. And they think to themselves, oh, ha, 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 because 
the people whose votes they're trying to garner with this okay, might I, not like I, I mean, the I, right that I can't way. think of a I can't think of a piece of legislation that had that legend on the front that it does not comply with the Human Rights Act. Is no, that occasionally what? it has happened has in the it? past. Yeah. 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 There was an occasion where I think it was something that communication was the Communications Act. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Didn't the earlier Rwanda legislation not have a certificate? Well, uh, well we also had it in, in relation to the business of Northern Ireland not complying with the, the, the Brexit Treaty. And, yeah. the, and that little episode of we're going to breach international yeah. law by having right. a, a, a tree and wasn't bill there, what about Northern um, Ireland that would carry it. There, you know, this may be a bit of a diversion, but they passed an act to Parliament. Parliament did, but the government promoted it and used its majority, effectively giving an amnesty to everybody, yes. terrorists and soldiers alike, with a view to allowing soldiers who might have committed crimes to feel free that they weren't going to be prosecuted. The only way they could do it was to do it for everybody, and everybody includes every murder effectively Absolutely. during the Troubles. And it's an absolute disgrace. I'm going to ask you some questions about the Safety of Rwanda Asylum and Immigration right. Bill. This requires, now you have to concentrate here, any decision maker, so that would be an immigration officer or a court, considering a generic asylum claim, that is one that is based on general circumstances. They've got to Rwanda. <clears throat> yeah, rather than one based on individual circumstances to conclude that Rwanda is a safe third country. Yeah. So this requires the decision maker, if somebody wants to say Rwanda is not safe, you can say too bad, it is going to be it is safe. Yeah. And the bill then purports to make that decision unchallengeable in the High Court, whether under the Human Rights Act or otherwise. Yeah. Now, there has been quite a lot of law about whether Parliament has the power to prevent judicial review of a decision. Mm -hmm. You've got two principles in play here, haven't you? You've got, first of all, the principle that Parliament is supreme and it can pass any legislation it likes. And then secondly, you've got the principle that Parliament can, should only be able to pass just laws. I mean, Parliament couldn't, for example, it is said, pass a law saying that all red-headed people would be exterminated. It couldn't do that. It would be beyond its competence to do that. It would like to think, wouldn't you? I would like to think. Yeah, yes. So what do you say about all the cases about what are called ouster clauses, preventing judicial review of government decisions? They all do have, however, a, some kind of tribunal or judicial body which considers the matter before you get to judicial review. I'm, I'm, I made it clear that I think this is contrary to the rule of law because it fundamentally undermines the right to be protected from persecution. What this bill says is Rwanda is a safe country. Mm -hmm. And the way that this will be put in the courts is that is Parliament deciding it is a safe country. And if Parliament decides it's a safe country, it's not as if there has been the exclusion of judicial review of the question is Rwanda a safe country? That is a decision made by Parliament that is effectively unchallengeable. It's not like these other cases where, for example, it's often said in bills, this tribunal shall decide whether that's against national security and, and in relation to any individual case, you can't judicially review it. Yes. And the courts have generally said, well, you can't really do that. There can be very, very limited circumstances very limited, in yeah. which you can't challenge a particular decision. But if the decision is being taken by Parliament as a matter of process, 
I would imagine the courts will respect that. No, hold on a minute. I sit on the Joint Committee on Human Rights. Before Christmas, we had uh, the Lord Chancellor, mm. um, Alex Chalk, come in front of us and we taxed him about uh, th- this new law. I would suggest that he doesn't feel totally comfortable with it himself, but mm. uh, I wouldn't uh, impute um, notions to him that he didn't give voice to. But what he did agree when it was put to him was that uh, individual challenge could be made on the personal circumstances yes, yes. of an individual. Yes, yes. And so he was saying, he was agreeing with what so we medical were reasons, for Yes, example, so yeah. for medical reasons. And what I'd if like I went to, to Rwanda and I've got a medical condition and that would make me feel very, very ill? That's not challenging the basic proposition that Rwanda is, is a safe. safe place. So it's like saying we accept, for example, that France is a safe place, but if I go to France, I get... A particular illness. Well, it's problem. basically saying it's not a safe place for me for yeah. my, because of my particular circumstances. Yeah. And I'd like to come back to that because yeah. I think that there's a serious problem about Rwanda because it has very little mental health provision yeah. at all. Yeah. Well, there's a good and, and, but back to this business, which well, is I mean, that... Well, I mean, what about me, for example? I, I gather that there's very, very little opportunity of being treated for Parkinson's. I might be able to claim for it if your, I were... A... Your, uh, such good news <laughs> that you're safe. That you're safe. <laughs> you're, not, you're not going to be sent to Rwanda. Not, Elena and me, on the other hand, we, we are might, very I would, I would think I might be really vulnerable. <laughs> but, but all I would say to you is that it's this business, if you're committed to the rule of law, the idea that you're going to go against your Supreme Court that's saying, listen, we've looked at this, and it's, it's done more than say it was the, this country was sending people back to bad places where they might be tortured again. And what they were saying was the infrastructure is not good enough. Mm. And so what the government has done is they've gone away and said, what can we do in a huddle? Golly, we're going to lose an extra election if we don't do something about this and Rwanda's become an iconic thing for us. What we're going to do, well what we'll do is we'll get Rwanda to agree that they're they're not going to send people back to Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen and the places that we know torture. Um, But what we'll we'll also get them to do is we'll we'll help them with the training on making decisions because there's been a problem on their business of due process, independent judges and the whole business of the rule of law. So we're going to have to do a whole reform program in the course of a matter of weeks in order to make this happen. We know that that's not possible in any nation. Absolutely. And so, it, and that's why Jonathan Sumption, who was on our Supreme Court, has publicly said this is bigger than making a commitment not to send people to bad places. This is about there not being a system that works yet in Rwanda. And that maybe they may have good intentions, but it ain't there yet. And that there's discrimination against uh, mm-hmm. uh, people who are different. And there's been evidence of that. There has been terrible human rights abuses. There is not due process, and the judiciary don't seem to understand the meaning yes, of due process. It's hard to see so, how this treaty is like a sort of magic wand. It's not. It's, exactly. it's, like, yeah. it's like this business of we will say it's safe, we will get them to say that they won't do the bad things that are particularly mentioned by the, the Supreme Court, and therefore we'll and make all good. if we expel them, it'll only be back here. And it really is... It's a nonsense. And what I know, if you look at the the suffering that there was during that genocide, is that already there's recognition by the World Health Organization and other organizations that there is no proper mental health provision for people who are suffering the trauma, the deep trauma that came with genocide, but also the deep traumas that most people who have genuine asylum claims have because they've been persecuted, they've suffered torture, whatever. And so mental health provision is one of the, the things. And let me tell you, this is a bit that nobody ever mentions. 
in that treaty, they will be, they'll pick up on a thing that was in the Memorandum of Understanding. The Memorandum of Understanding between Britain and uh, Rwanda right. said at uh, Clause 16, Paragraph 16, that Rwanda can send people to us mm. um, who are asylum seekers. They can send some of their asylum seekers to us. Please, people around the country, listen. They're going to be sending people from Rwanda to us. Yeah. Now, why are they, they doing they, that? Do they think in Rwanda they, that's a deterrent? Now, let me just tell you, it's very interesting. Mm. They're sending them to us when they have probably medical problems, but I suspect mental health problems that they can't accommodate. Yeah. And so they're going to send those people to us so that our National Health Service can provide for them. Tell that to your your voters who, who want uh, to uh, limit the... Well, the, let's the, not encourage people to seek asylum in Rwanda. Well, I mean, they'll, they'll be curious. <laughs> well, they may not have that what problem. Is? Let me just tell you, there is hidden in all of this a lot of other interests. And, the, and Rwanda has got its interests. They're go- making out like bandits. They're making out a lot of money, 300 million yeah. pounds for just taking the handfuls of people that are likely to be sent there and into the bargain they're going to be able to send people here to get um, medical help and into the bargain we are going to be able hopefully to do more and more business with Rwanda now, I'm happy for us to do business yes. with Rwanda as long as it is lawful legitimate and is not exploitative of people and is respecting human rights but remember when, that when, Rwanda when? is next door to places and itself has those rare earth minerals that we need for our technology. And that's mm. why we actually quite like the idea of being hugger-mugger with Rwanda. Improving <coughs> Rwanda's legal system is a good idea, but we can't do it at the overnight. expense of, of asylum can't do it overnight, that's for sure. But there's something I want to ask you, a sort of technical question, is that the bill ostensibly leaves open the right to petition Strasbourg. Mm. And I thought, well, that is very odd. I thought, well, that was the last thing I'd want them to be able to do. But then you realise that this is a sort of an art sally they put up. Because Clause 5 of the bill gives the minister the exclusive right to decide whether to comply with an interim measure from the Strasbourg court preventing removal. Because they, yeah. they absolutely hate these interim measures, don't they, Charlie? They hate the interim measures. But again, this is all fake window dressing. There's not a compulsion in any event to comply with interim measures, though we always have done. They are doing this to say to their backbenchers, look, we're standing up against Europe. and we Foreign court. Exactly. Yeah. And we have frequently not complied with interim measures when it's impossible yeah. to do so. And we could have said no to this one. Mm. The whole thing is the most ridiculous ridiculous convention that I suspect whatever your politics of immigration or whatever view you take about the Human Rights Act, everybody can see that it's just a fake. So all the points that Helena was making about saying, oh, Supreme Court says this, beetle off to Rwanda, agree that within 15 minutes we'll completely transform the whole legal system. It's just absolute but, but, um, I think that what you have said, though, is probably correct, which is that courts in this country only act on evidence. Yeah. And evidence which is there to prove facts. Yeah. And the fact that was uh, fatal for the previous policy was that Miranda was not safe has now been reversed or will be reversed by this bill. That fact will be changed and Parliament can change that fact. Parliament can make a decision yes. about that if it wants. If it wants. It, it and so be... if it did that, the courts would have to respect that. I think they would. However, let's stick to the business, which is the one that's facing us just now, which is the one that the real resentment that has been felt by the hard right of the Conservative Party. It's not across the whole of the Conservative Party. You know, there's one nation, nation Conservatives who really respect the rule of law, but there's a lunatic fringe that don't. And 
and they don't like anything that comes from outside of the United Kingdom. But in fact, we've been involved in the creation of that stuff that comes from outside of the United Kingdom and have actually been the front runners in it in many respects. What we have come to agree and it has evolved and we've encouraged that evolution, which is that when something is irreversible and will have the irreversible impact on a human life, then an interim order saying stay of execution, please, until your courts have actually heard the arguments on this. And that's what they did in relation to Rwanda. And that's what stopped people being sent to Rwanda. Now, there were people on the hard right of the Conservative Party who said, just ignore it and send them off. Well, we haven't just ignored it and sent them off because there is still enough people inside the governing party who say the rule of law matters and actually... This goes to the very heart of some of a human being's fundamental rights. But everybody sensible will be sympathetic to what you're saying, which is you, if a Rule 39 order is made and the consequence of Strasbourg saying you can't send somebody to a particular place because they might die, then obviously you should wait to discover whether that's right or whether that's wrong. But the whole rule of law argument has shifted dramatically to the right because I think Helena and I and you, Nicholas, would I'm sure agree that neither the current Attorney General nor the current Lord Chancellor would be regarded as hard right no, members. No, no, no. Not at all. And yet they have A, agreed that they will state they will not comply with Rule 39 and B, they've been perfectly happy to stay in the government when they produced a bill which explicitly disapplies the Human Rights Act. It does. And And itself is not not compliant with the Human Rights Act. And that's regarded within, and this is not the right language, but the centre of the Conservative Party and by the big lawyers in that as okay. And my goodness me, that is a massive shift away from what we would regard but, as the basic rules of the you guys, you, in New Labour, you guys made the same decision that you law, senior law people, you know, Lord Goldsmith, Derry Irving was involved in it, Lord Irving. But Lord Goldsmith was the person who, and there was a shifting in the legal opinion that he relied upon at the end, let's remember, was that many of us felt that that was a wrong decision. And what we, what we know is that politics intervenes in this. And when you say that the, that the rule of law, the protection of the rule of law has shifted to the right, yeah. there's less protection of it, it's because politics globally has shifted to the right. And we're seeing far more authoritarianism. It's a response, yeah. I think, to globalisation. Yeah. And as a result, we're seeing law being interpreted in much less liberal democratic ways. Yeah. And so that, to me, is a source of regret. Yeah. But but it's the nature of that very careful and, and, and difficult thing, which is, the fusion of law but it has to carry with it public consent. Yeah. Now, the way that we think that we get public consent in Britain is by having a parliamentary democracy. Yeah. Unfortunately, as Lord Hailsham, a Conservative Lord Chancellor, said, was that you sometimes have the tyranny of the majority. And the tyranny of the majority is in the House of Commons, where because of the capture of the, the Conservative Party by its extreme right, you've got, unfortunately, enough people saying... This is what we have to do, and they, and it's not being respectful of but the I, I, The the Labour government's compromise in relation to that was to say we'll introduce the Human Rights Act. That was right. We won't mean that the law can trump democracy, but if it's against the Human Rights Act, then you can fast track a change in the law. And from time to time, we as a government transgressed the Human Rights Act, for example, in relation to our post-9-11 you measures. You definitely did then. I and mean, then, and the court locking said, people up without trial. God. Or, or, or locking up 
foreign people only without trial, which the court said was discriminatory. discriminatory. And what did we do? We then changed the law in relation to it. Yeah. And we respected that. Because the, the, whole, the, whole the whole issue is how do you balance a democracy, parliament is the final decider, against the fact there are certain principles that you have to respect. Okay. And those principles include that, human rights Can I come back? This bill prevents any challenge being made to a decision to remove an asylum seeker to Rwanda on the grounds that it is unsafe. The bill determines that Rwanda is a safe place. Correct. I want to quote something that Michael Howard said. He said this 22 years ago. Judicial review started as a valuable exercise in limiting the arbitrary exercise of ministerial powers. Expanded over the years by activist judges, it has begun to substitute government by unelected judges for government by elected ministers. That was nearly 25 years ago. Has it just been the same thing? Has it just been activist judges undermining oh, no. the, the decisions of elected members of parliament, no, elected ministers? No, the judges are not. respected. The judges have <clears throat> imposed minimum standards for making decisions. You've got to do what parliament allows you to do as a minister, and you've got to do it in a way that's not arbitrary, not capricious, and not motivated by bias or completely lacking in any evidential mm. support if you reach a decision. Now, does the public want ministers to make decisions that are outside what they're allowed to do by Parliament and has no basis at all except a capricious desire to help a friend? No, they do not. I just want to say, power is delightful, and politicians <laughs> enjoy a great deal of power, particularly when they're in the executive, they're in the cabinet, it, they're in ministries. It has to be constrained. Power is delightful and absolute power is absolutely delightful. And that's why you get people like Michael Howard, when he was a cabinet minister, wanting even more power and not yeah. wanting to be, to be constrained. And it's important for, in a democracy, for people to have the opportunity of bringing cases to say, the decision that you made affecting my life, my disabled child, the decisions that you've made have been wrong and have been unjust and are contrary to human rights. And you, you've got to be able to challenge decisions that be made by yeah. officials. That's the nature of democracy. This business of people loathing the Human Rights Act is so contrary to the very... It is, it is a very... It is strange uh, how much Hutt. hostility it, it arouses. The European Convention on Human Rights was... Uh, when was it? 1950? 1950. 1950. Do you know who the first... Which country was the first signatory? We were. We were the first yeah, signatory. We wrote but it. We wrote it and we were the first signatory. And it's now a hate object. Well, not only for some people. I mean, most people realise. I mean, the truth is we should have championed it much more when it came into being. But the problem was we were, it was under attack from uh, the Daily Mail and from uh, tabloid newspapers suggesting that it was prisoners and immigrants who were going to benefit from this. In fact, it's done a huge amount, let me tell you immediately, for, for example, victims of sexual violence, for uh, women who were killed and their families wanted to have an inquiry into it, uh, women in the, the, in the military who experienced harassment. Lots of things that were, were challenge to benefit women in society and, and it, victims. It also really benefits people against an oppressive, over-bureaucratic state. Yes. So if, for example, you're elderly and you've been married for 50 years and the local authority insists that you are separated from your husband in a different care home, the Human Rights Act will prevent that happening. It will. Very, very many things yeah. that the Human Rights Act does would be things that people who regularly subscribe to the Daily Telegraph would find wholly admirable. Absolutely. It gets the big state able to do whatever it likes with you off your back. And yet 
as Helena says, its only association is through, oh, well, it only protects pr- criminals and only protects immigrants, therefore we don't like it. And these whole myths that grow up, silly stories about you have to give people who are holding people hostage Kentucky Fried Chicken because of their human rights, it's, which is a complete nonsense. Or the prisoners should be entitled to pornography. Exactly, all of that. I mean, or somebody, could, somebody couldn't be deported because of a cat. Exactly, all yeah, of that. Exactly. And that was Theresa May who said that. Yeah. And Ken Clark said, what a load of absolute rubbish. But... Who was she appealing to? She was appealing to the activists in her own party. But but we've got to remember why, after the Second World War, you know, I always remind students when I'm talking to them, Eleanor Roosevelt's calling together of lawyers in their Hmm. sitting room in Washington Square was to say, how do we create world law? And it was pointed out to her that you can't because law has to be sort of at one with the, the history and the conditions of a nation. But that what you can do is create a set of principles, values that inform all legal systems. And that was what and the when, European Convention we writing, of Human Rights was about. When we were writing them down, we were just writing down all our existing common law rights. Most of them Is are there, They were yeah. all there already. We were, we, were, we were bringing into law things that had not previously been regarded as being governed by law. So yes, yes, the common law would unquestionably have got there. But, you know, the common law did not address issues like what are the basic principles which allow you to use force, for example. That has developed over a period of time. And... The Human Rights Act and the Convention address those sorts of issues in a completely different way. You see, the, the Universal De- Declaration of Human Rights was the starting point. Then Europe said, well, we'll have, and, and Britain was at the, the, the very beginnings of this, said we should create a convention across the, the whole of Europe, particularly for those countries that had that were sort of right there, close up to the Iron Curtain. Yeah. I mean, we saw the way things were going um, with the Soviet Union and so on. And so it was about establishing a set of principles. And then it sort of had to be translated into domestic law. Mm. It took a long time for us to translate translate into domestic law, but I think it's hugely enriched our legal system and most lawyers and judges would agree th- that actually the Human Rights but Act we're, has we're been a benefit. The likes of Alex Chalk, essentially decent person, is constantly wondering how far can it go before I've got to go and it's always edging and edging. Yes. For, they're running a million miles from the convention because plenty within their own political party a being a big outspoken supporter of this great defender of freedom is regarded as absolute poison. It's a real problem for the Conservative Party and I do think that a section of it has captured the moment, you know. I think that uh, it's really important that voices for the rule of law, voices for one nation conservatism have to be heard again, talking about why yes, all I mean, of this I mean, matters. It is, it is interesting when you think of Dominic Raab's Bill of Rights Bill. Do you yeah. remember the Bill of Rights Bill? I do. Which was going to abrogate the Human Rights Act and then just reenact it in almost identical terms, but absent Strasbourg. That, exactly, but that's not... It's going to be the same rights. But the Rwanda Bill that you're looking at is absolutely a kick in the teeth, a punch in the stomach for basic principles of the rule of law because you can't legislate away the fact that Rwanda will fundamentally undermine the basic rights of somebody not to be exported to persecution. The moment you say that that's what they're doing, you see that they're going against the principle. And they say, oh, well, no, don't you worry, because it's all just little bits and pieces here. And it's not. It's absolutely... Many people who are listening will have watched the film Hotel Rwanda. And it was about that terrible business of the genocide and about a man, Paul Rusesa Bagina, helping to evacuate a whole lot of people. And recently that man, let me tell you, Kagame, he had him kidnapped when he was going through the airport at Dubai. He was a critic of Rwanda and its failure to be 
democratic and its uh, treatment of, of its citizens. And so he had him captured, taken to Rwanda, put on trial, and it, the trial did not conform to due process. And there's been a report about the nature of the trial. And he eventually was has been allowed out. I was involved in campaigning for him, and I know his daughters and his wife very well. And Paul had cancer. He's now at liberty, I'm glad to say. But it took a lot of campaigning. And all I can say is the rule of law is not protected in Mm. Rwanda. So the question I'm going to ask you two on behalf of the public is, if this Rwanda bill is useless and will not work, how are you going to stop the boats? Well, I think there's fundamental problems about huge migrations coming from the south. The politicians are not facing up to the fact that that is the problem. So there are all these gimmicks like Rwanda, which carry with them the destruction of the rule of law and produce absolutely nothing because they won't change it at all. I don't know what the solution is to people moving from countries where law and order is broken down who genuinely have a fear of persecution. But Europe and the states are not willing to put up with that number of migrants tr- moving. That is the fundamental problem. It that is exists. a problem. Let's not pretend that there isn't an issue here about the movements of people. But most people move to the place next door. And let's be very clear about that. And so there are many other countries having a much more serious oh, yes, problem than us. Mm. Definitely true. But the way that you do this, it's, it's, a, it's a twofold thing, is that we should be, instead of sending £300 million to the Rwandans, we should be sending money into Europe to create proper uh, cross-border policing hubs that are dealing with the trafficking and dealing with that way. Yeah. because of fact, we know that we've seen already because of a, a move towards better connection with France and exactly. working more closely with France. International cooperation is the key to key this. Key to it. And the one way you're not going to get international cooperation is by breaking and every you also single have to, international but you also have to. We also have to, the rich world has to be much more generous in helping the, the poor world and many of those nations that are suffering, and climate change is one of those problems, suffering the economic consequences of a very, very divided world when and it comes that, to resources. I read something for which there is not. Three million pounds to France under a deal to enhance their monitoring, which has resulted in a 25% reduction in small boat arrivals so far this year. Well, there you are. And so what you do is you invest in those kind of high-level policing hubs um, where you collaborate with policing, our police with their police and so on, to deal with the traffickers. And you also increase the numbers of effective, not cheap people brought in and paid nothing who become disaffected and and, uh, hate the job. Bring in all of our new graduate lawyers, bring them in, train them to deal with the business of asylum assessment criteria and so on and have them deal with this backlog and get through it like a a knife through butter. I mean, the one thing that the public really want is the sense that whatever our border arrangements are, they are effectively enforced. And that is why the boats are such a problem. The Rwanda judgment reminds me of the very well-known, I think it's 1942 case of Liversidge and Anderson, where Lord Atkin brutally blew up this pathetic line taken by the majority of the then Supreme Court in this country, which is the Judicial Committee of the House of Lords, and was sent to Coventry. They refused to talk to him for weeks after that because of his candour. Now, under the wartime regulations, if the Secretary of State has reasonable cause to believe that any person is of hostile origin or associations, then he could be locked up. And and Mr Liversidge was locked up, And he complained and it went to court, but the majority held that if the Secretary of State said in good faith that he did think that he had reasonable cause to believe that Mr Liversidge was of hostile origins, then he could lock him up and no court could go behind it. And Lord Atkins said, I know of only one authority which might justify this method of construction, and that is through the looking glass. 
He said, when I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. And Alice says, well, the question is whether you can make words mean so many different things. And Humpty Dumpty said, the question is which is to be the master, that's all. Now, the sequel to this story is that um, that decision where the majority said that Mr Liversidge's incarceration couldn't be questioned provoked a famous letter to Lord Atkin from Mr Justice Wintringham Stable, fired off from the judge's lodgings in Leicester, where he was sitting, and written in what was told to be characteristically <laughs> trenchant terms. His and son he, was in my chambers. His son was in your chambers. Yeah. He approved Lord Atkin's dissent very strongly, and then he said, I venture to think that the decision of the House of Lords has reduced the stature of the judiciary with consequences that the nation will one day bitterly regret. Bacon, Francis Bacon, I think, said the judges were lions under the throne, but the House of Lords has reduced us to mice squeaking, squeaking under a chair in the Home <laughs> yes, Office. Yes. Now, I, don't, I actually don't think that Bacon was talking about the judges being fearlessly independent. Definitely like. not. He wasn't, because he, he was an old was. royal toady, wasn't he? Well, I mean, the judges being independent of the, of the king is quite a new thing. Bacon was talking about these judges will do whatever the he king did. wants. Just, and listen, what we have to recognise, it is not that long ago, a few centuries ago, we've had corruption in our judiciary and so on. Yeah. We don't have any of that now. It do, takes a long time to evolve a system of law. That's why Rwanda is such so, a disaster. So, I'm very gratified to hear that. I declare us to be... Lions and not squeaking mice. No, not lion. under the throne. But definitely, Nick, <laughs> Nick, you wear a lion, you are a, a lion. lion. We can all be content on that. There we are. You need to find a place that's not under the throne or even under the toolbox in the, in the, in the home office. <laughs> well, that was a fascinating discussion, if I might say so. Well, we'll and wait to see what happens with this legislation because yeah. it's now, you know, making its passage through Parliament and I hope enough voices will be heard. Well, our next episode is going to look at the concept of international law, mm. where it comes from and what it means today with particular reference to the Israel-Hamas-Gaza conflict. So we will see you next week. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Next week. You've been listening to Law and Disorder with Helena Kennedy, Charlie Faulkner and me, Nicholas Mostyn. The show is produced by Nick Hilton for Podo. Our theme music is by Anthony Willis. Please subscribe to get new episodes straight into your podcast app. We'd be delighted to know what you think of the podcast, so do please email us your thoughts on lawanddisorderfeedback at gmail.com. See you next week.